Good morning to you uh, this morning here at Christ Central. Uh, I'm Harold, one of the pastors, and very honored, very happy to bring to you God's Word. We're continuing this Real Life Relationships series, and today we're going to talk about dating unmarried folks. We've been going through friendships, going through love and marriage, but today we fall on I Kiss the Blank Goodbye in Dating. So it'll be projected overhead as well as I'm going to read it here in the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, okay, verses 3 to 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. I'll read this for us. This is God's word. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, this is God's word. Been looking at friendships, love and marriage, and today, dating. I hope that you have noticed with me a running theme of how in the world all the relationships, with all the thrills and all the highs and all the joys and blessings that come with it, is also, of course, completely mixed with a lot of difficulty and pain and challenges as well. When did all these relationships get so difficult? And counselors or psychologists will call it dysfunctional. When did all these relationships get so dysfunctional? Why can't people just trust each other? Why do people get so easily slighted or offended or hurt? How come when God tells us to love people, we turn that into lust? How come people with power or privilege or authority or position turn that into abuse? How come people cling and stay with abusers? When and how did hashtag MeToo really begin? When did people behind closed doors take advantage of one another? When did it all begin? Me too, and so many women, they shouldn't be so shocked. You too, another man has fallen? I'll tell you, I don't want to simplify things, but I just go along the Holy Scriptures All relational dysfunction, listen, all relational difficulty and dysfunction, all relational fallout happened when Adam and Eve had a falling out with God. Your relational struggles, my relational struggles, at the root, ultimately, is when we broke away from God. And so just picture this with me. If your most important, fundamental, first vital, precious, life-giving relationship is broken, it's dysfunctional, or it's not even existent, what do you think that's going to do to all the other relationships? 
I mean, how many relationships have you gotten into where you or the other person says, I have baggage from the previous relationship? That's right. The scriptures would completely agree. We all bring baggage into our present relationships, and that baggage is a result of the fallout that we've had with God. Now, you see, scientists, scientists know that their job is not to invent or come up with some new laws. It's simply to discover and study scientific laws. Their job is to discern the order that already exists in all of the universe. But the notion that there would only be physical and scientific order to the universe, but when it comes to sexuality or morality or spirituality, there is no order whatsoever, that's terribly mistaken. That's naive. Why do you think there would be scientific, physical order to all of the universe, but when it comes to your dating or marriages or sexuality or your relationships and your morality, that there's no order there? No, the Holy Scriptures plainly reveal to us in chapter 4, 4 verse 3, God's will, God's order, is that we all abstain from sexual immorality that is defined as any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. God's order is that all people would abstain from sexual immorality, no sexual activity outside of marriage. To put this positively in verse 4, Apostle Paul commands, control your own body in holiness and honor. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I've got three common reactions or objections to what we call the Christian ethic on sex. I've entitled it, I Kiss Blank Goodbye in Dating. You'll probably have to fill in the blank. It may differ for a lot of the individuals in this room. But here are three popular common reactions or objections to this Christian command, abstain from all sexual immorality and control your own body in holiness and honor. The first one goes like this, the first one. I hear it all the time. What a regressive, negative, shame-inducing view of sex. What's, a, what's, what's up with you Christian people? What's going on with all these ancient rules restricting sex? It must be because you Christian people have a very low negative view of sex. Now, I don't think that's the case. If you have gotten anything valuable, your 25th anniversary, or some milestone you graduated from here, or you got that job, or a loving friend got you this special, expensive gift. Have you ever gotten a pretty much a priceless gift? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Do you sit there and say, well, I want, I want no security, I want no privacy, I want no protections, I want no safeguards around it? The more valuable and priceless it is to you, do you then treat it like it's Halloween candy? I'm just going to put it out the front of my house. Anyone randomly can just come and take some. Use it as you please. No. If it's truly precious to you, you will become very protective of it. Private. You'll put security around it. And if you do that, you see, it doesn't show what a negative, regressive view you have of that item. It actually demonstrates how precious it is to you. And my friends, Christian people actually cannot have 
a higher view of sex. We cannot. Sex is sacred. Sex is more powerful and wondrous than we know. All sexual activity is actually spiritual activity because God created it and he gave it to us to enjoy. I mean, even Bruno Mars knows this in a song entitled Locked Out of Heaven. Never had much faith in love or miracles, but I'm born again every time you spend the night. Why do you think people get so obsessive about sex? Why do you think people talk and think about it too much or too little? Why do you think there is sexual addiction? Why do you think there's so much obsession about it and, and neurotic kind of consequences from it? Because it does tap into the deepest spiritual dimensions of our souls. And Christian people are simply following the revelation of God who created and gave us sex, who tells us, abstain from all sexual immorality, learn to control your body in holiness and honor. God is all for sex. There is no other God who is more pro-sex. He is, however, totally against the demeaning, damaging, demanding, and debilitating kind. God is pro-sex, but he is absolutely against the kind of sex that will leave you alone the morning after. God does not want anyone to experience sex without safety, security, and exclusive commitment, a covenant called marriage. God wants people, if you are going to receive and enjoy sex, to enjoy it to the hilt, all the way, to maximize the enjoyment and to fulfill God's design. So that's the first objection. What a regressive, negative, ancient view of sex. No, you cannot be further from the truth. Christian people taking orders from God, we have the highest view. Sex is sacred. Here's a second. Here's a second. When we read passages like this, abstain from all sexual immorality. I know a lot of people in this room, if you're church-going, and you might be a professing Christian. I'm talking about professing Christian. I'm talking about people who are very churched. I know you don't want to say it out loud, but deep in your hearts, some of you are thinking, this is so unrealistic. I'm already defeated. I've given up. Any and all talk about sexual purity or discipline or self-control, you know that it's there, you know God is all for this kind of standard, but your consciences have been bothering you and bothering you and bothering you, but you just learned to cope with it. You've just learned to move on. And deep in your hearts, you've just basically checked out. Functionally, you know God's command is this, but you just live out a life where you say, I give up, I can never keep that. You think this is a pipe dream. You think it's too idealistic. You think it's unrealistic. You think it's like a postcard from heaven. And until we get to heaven, that's the only time we're really going to be able to experience something like this. You know, there's a story of a young college student coming back to his, his church. This was in the South, and I've heard it at two different Christian conferences. And he comes back to his older, wiser pastor who really, really loved, loved this student. But the student came back and said, Pastor... You know, I'm really about to jump off that ledge 
of abandoning my childhood Christian faith. I knew grew up here, and I thank you for all the support and prayers. But, you know, I've gone to college, and I've experienced some things. And I learned some things. And, you know, I don't think I could continue to profess to love and follow Jesus. And you know what this older, wiser pastor did? I don't recommend it for anyone. It's just that he was close to the student. He just replied with the question, so who are you sleeping with? Because that pastor knew that for a lot of people, your abandonment of the Christian childhood faith is not intellectual reasons, but it's most likely sexual, social, cultural, experiential, and emotional reasons. And for those of us who are on the path right now, where you do know God's will and command is here, but you live out in a way that you just have given up, I assure you that is extremely dangerous territory to be in. Because one or the other is going to have to go someday. Your theology or your morality, they're usually intertwined. You know, our very, very good friend, Peter Troutman, disciple and navigator is at NYU. He came and gave a seminar. It's available online. It's called Seminar on Sex. And he shared how since his engagement to his beautiful wife, and he's going into the second decade of marriage, he confessed and shared by the grace of God, he has not looked at pornography once. Like, not once. Never. That by the grace of God, through his wife, and through friends, and computer software, and the Holy Spirit's power, that going on to two decades... My dear friend says he is porn-free going into a second decade. Now, you see, there are self-help groups out there, and it's wonderful because self-help groups tap into something that Christianity offered first, that there's power in confession and broken sinners getting together in a small group and overcoming it together. Oh, they just take out God, and there's still a lot of power there because you can go into sexual addiction recovery groups. You can go into Alcoholics Anonymous. You can go into groups that suffer with depression and anxiety. You can go into groups that recover from drug abuse. And I will tell you, check out the stats. Even the self-help groups report success rates. There are people overcoming lifelong habitual destructive, dysfunctional habits without God. How much more do you think that with the infinite power and presence and resources of God, especially through his church, when people come together to really tackle the second objection, no, God's commands must be realistic. He's not a cruel, frustrating God that just throws out the carrot that you can never get. He doesn't ever give you a standard that he says, oh, it's totally unattainable. I just want you to always fail. No, maybe it's that God gave you so much grace, so much power, so much provisions that you really can keep these commands and you should never give up. You see, notice the command, abstain from all sexual immorality. I want you to notice this is plural, plural, never individual, never solo. And it's by the power of Christian community, power of Christian sisters, power of Christian brothers, power of really open confession that we together can walk in repentance and purity. 
I've had several sisters and brothers tell me from the heart, pastor, all my life I have struggled with same-sex attraction. I have been born with it. That's what I feel. I am just attracted to someone of the same sex. And in order for me to follow Jesus Christ, I do know what that means. And I'll tell you the ones who have confessed that to me. One got married, has kids. Others have continued to just walk and follow Jesus. They have shown me over and over and over again to this day that God's power to change lives is for real. Do not believe all the false reports. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says actually, such were some of you, sexually immoral. But he uses the past tense. See, this is what you were like. You were like the Gentiles. You were like people who didn't know God through Jesus. So you were just dominated by your passions. But such were some of you. And Apostle Paul goes on to write, but now you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. From what? Sexual immorality. Now please stay with this. Paul doesn't just call out that sexual sin or sexual sinners are like the worst kind. There's a long list. And in the same list, lest you think you're better than other people because this area might be something that somehow for now you're being pretty clean about, Paul goes on to say, and greed and drunkards, and revilers, revilers, people who speak ill and look down on other people because they struggle with sins that you may not. And here's what Apostle Paul is saying. It can be done. Such were some of you in the past. But when you come into contact, not only just with the commands of God, but with the provision and the grace of his Holy Spirit, you can obey and overcome. My friend, can you listen to me loud and clear this morning? Isn't maybe one of the major reasons you've basically become so cynical, kind of checked out, maybe even depressed about your spiritual life is because deep down you've just given up? You've just given up when it comes to the sexual ethic you just have resigned yourself to, everyone's doing it. The media tells me they do it. The latest research and articles tell me they do it. And you know you're in bad spiritual shape when you believe in the latest update or reports or current sexual lifestyles. You believe in that, that that would set you free more than the word of God. The word of God tells us sex is a great, wonderful thing. It is sacred, but misuse it, you can become a slave. It'll never set you free. So here's the first. Here was the first. How ancient, how negative, how regressive. Second, it's unrealistic, so I've given up. Here's the third. Here's the third. Abstinence or sexual purity limits my pleasure. It limits my pleasure. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, we read remarkable, remarkable verses here. 10 verses 29 to 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother 
or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. I want you to bank on Jesus that he's going to keep that word. Here's what he just prophesied. No matter who you lose, even a love relationship, even a family member, even the love of your life, what did Jesus say? You cannot outgive God. There is nothing you can lose that Jesus promises. I cannot give back a hundredfold. No, not just in the kingdom of heaven to come. He said, in this life. God rescues and provides and strengthens and blesses and gives people down to the seed of their soul, those who would truly want to follow and believe in Jesus, all that you would really ever need. The notion that sexual purity limits my pleasure, my friend, I think you got it backwards. Sexual purity paves the way for greater pleasures. In the realm of sexual order, as designed and given by God, being controlled and honoring and being holy and being abstinent in certain stages of life does not limit your pleasures. It pays the way for greater pleasures and intimacy. You know, in a survey by the National Marriage Project, men were reported to list that sexual attraction was not their number one reason for choosing their future marriage partner. All right, I want to give men a hand for that one. We're, we're not that bad, I guess. But what men listed as their number one reason was compatibility, compatibility. By compatibility, they meant a willingness to take them as they are and never change them. You see, compatibility is code for a person saying, you will meet my needs, my expectations. Remember one of the mis-expectations from last week. You will cater to my schedule, every whim, and please don't ever try to actually change me. That's compatibility. And to evaluate who might be best compatible or an ideal fit, a lot of people are trying out marriage together by living together before they actually get married. And you figure this is safer, right? Let's try out living together, try out marriage by living together without actually legally, economically, and spiritually tying the knot. Well, in 2012, cohabitation preceded 37%, 37% of all marriages. Cohabitation rates have exploded, but I'm sad to say it has not reduced the rate of divorce. Not one whit. The National Marriage Project went on to report, cohabitation gives men regular access to the domestic and sexual ministrations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. See, most men, if not all men, want friends with benefits without the binding cost of exclusive commitment. But all the stats will then show cohabitating is no better indication or prediction of long-lasting marriage. No, what's much more important than that is age and maturity. Age and maturity. 
You know, New York Times bestseller, Damage, written by Josephine Hart, not a believer, not religious. Here's what she once admitted to. The idea today is that sleeping around doesn't matter. I'm not making any kind of religious point here, but I've included in there, but she can't help it. I'm just saying that if you sleep around with enough people, you're pretty much on the way to guaranteeing that you'll not recognize profound erotic love when it does come to you. You pay a price for it. I'm not saying it's a moral price, but again, it is a moral price. You pay a psychological price. Yes, it is a psychological price. It's a soul price. It's a spiritual price. It's an intimacy price. It's a pleasure price. It's a huge price. And you might just miss it when it happens. She admits to it. You play around with the sacred and you pay a steep price. My friends, impurity never pays off. It makes you pay. From your secret little, what you think is so secret, addiction to porn, to all the way to the end of the spectrum where we have absolute just assault, aggressive assault. All of it, my friend, will never pay Purity, though, however, will always pay off. What then is God's will for you? What then is God's will for us then? What does he want? What is his order? What's his pleasure? Verse three, his will is sanctification, that you become more and more like Jesus, specifically that you abstain from all sexual immorality, positively to control your own body in holiness and honor. That's the summary of all Christian life. Sanctification is just a big word that captures all of Christian life. Basically, you've been set free from sin's penalty in the past. You are now fighting its remaining present power only to be guaranteed to be set free from its future presence. Justified, set free from the penalty in the past. Sanctified now, fighting its remaining present powers and glorified someday, guaranteed, perfected. From all of its future presence, no more sin, no more shame. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith describes this process of sanctification becoming more and more like Jesus. Here's how it starts. In which war, that's how it starts. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Progressive, guaranteed, supernatural, stay with it. Don't ever give up. 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 God never gives up. And in the long run, you will find the overcoming power of God's own spirit at work. But how will you experience that? Notice how he called it in the beginning. It's a war. It's a war. Oh, my friends, when it comes to this area, is there any warring? Is there ever anything militant about you? Maybe violent, 
when it comes to the will of God that you be sanctified? Oh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gets so practical. Lest you thought the Holy Scripture is just all theory. No, you'll never find a more life-changing book. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He addresses the question, uh, Paul, what do I do with all these raging sexual passions and hormones? I'm not married. What do I do with that? Here's his answer. Chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. See, Paul is addressing that statement, that question. Is it really good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In verse 1, when he quotes this common saying that it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, in the Greek it actually is translated from arouse a fire or kindle a fire. Then in verse 2, Apostle Paul goes on to say, that right belongs to only a spouse, to kindle a fire. That right on any person to be aroused or to have their fire lit is by their current or future husband or wife. You connect that with our passage in verse 6, where Paul strangely talks about abstain from sexual immorality. And then in verse 6, he wrote this. No one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Why in the world does Paul start to go off about transgression? In different translations, it's actual robbery. How in the world does Paul go from don't commit sexual immorality and then he goes on to say don't rob one another. Here's the connection. Here's the connection. Paul is instructing specifically that when you arouse someone who is not your spouse, you're actually taking or robbing someone else's right. That person's future spouse or current spouse. And that right does not belong to you. In other words, for those who are not married, when you arouse one another, you are going too far. When you arouse, when you kindle a fire, it's not your right. You're actually going too far. I'm not just talking about sexual intercourse. I'm talking about nude pictures. I'm talking about Instagram posts. I'm talking about sexting. I'm talking about seducing. I'm talking about heavily making out. I don't care if you're fully clothed or not. But the right to kindle a fire and to sexually arouse by God's order and design is that only the spouse would get to do that. Practical considerations. Practical considerations. Real quick, just four. Why do you keep setting yourself up for failure in this? Why do you guys do this to yourselves? I mean, I remember one of the first movies I went with Sunny was a cartoon called Monsters. And she sat next to me, and our shoulders just slightly rubbed against each other. And I was watching monsters. I'm like, dude, I'm the monster. <laughs> I was lit. I was like, on fire. Just that. We've got to work at it much harder for us to get aroused now. 
Did I say that out loud? Okay, well, anyways. That is practical experience for growing in sexual satisfaction. But why do you guys keep setting yourself up for failure? Why? Why? It's like if you drive stick shift. You guys are revving real hard. First gear, second gear, third gear. You're like always going to fourth or fifth gear. But you can never go to the end. Why do you do that? What's wrong with you? Do you like grinding to a stop from fifth gear? Just stop. Do you like that? Does that work out for you? Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28 just talks about, can a man play with fire on his lap? Practical consideration. Stop setting yourself up for failure. Second, personal guidelines and legalisms that I recommend you don't impose on other people, but personal guidelines and legalisms are necessary and very good in areas that pertain to your weakness. They are very good safeguards, restrictions, boundaries. Oh, pastor, my girlfriend and I always end up, all right, let's just retrace that. When is it that you and your girlfriend end up doing that? Well, we drank wine. We're in the same sleeping bag. It was 2.30 a.m., I was at her apartment, no one was around. And man, every time it happens. <laughs> if your area of weakness is alcohol, no more alcohol. If your area of weakness is that certain club, no more club. If your area of weakness is a certain hour of the day, no more hour of the day. If your area of weakness is that no one ever asks you difficult questions, go and volunteer and ask. Tell people, you need to ask me, please. I want to be held accountable. If your area of weakness is that a phone or an iPad or a secret device you have in your house somewhere, when you're traveling or something, and that's your access, get a filter or a software called Covenant Eyes that to this day I get two reports over two decades from two dear brothers of mine that tell me every website they ever seen that last month. The way I am held accountable is that any trip I take, I'm taking one to San Francisco, hopefully tomorrow, I will be asked during or after that trip, was there anything inappropriate? Did you watch anything inappropriate on the TV? Did you interact with anyone of the opposite gender that would be uncomfortable if your wife were there or even if I were there? Why set yourself up for failure? And second, personal boundaries and guidelines and legalisms is all good. Here's C, here's C. Here's the third. Just stop. Just stop. Do you really need another sermon on this? Do you really just need to meet, read more books to be convicted by this? My friend, I have never had a couple complain to me that they waited till the day of their marriage. I've never had it. 
Stop today. Stop right now. We're talking as you go out that door, you are talking to somebody to confess your inability and you're going to seek help and accountability, everything you can get. Because you do know that the will of God for you is better than what you think. Can I ask you, my friends, do you think God could have better reasons than you can think of right now? Do you think God has the wisdom and experience that far exceeds yours than the experiences you're having right now? Do you think God's will for you would in any way limit and kill off your pleasure? No. God is in the business of fulfilling and maximizing it to a degree you may have never imagined. For those couples who are engaged or about to get engaged and she's a believer and you're a believer and you cohabitate or not and but you're like, well, you kind of excuse it because you say, well, I do know it's the will of God that I'm going to marry this person. So, you know, it's only like nine months away, so might as well do it. Uh, I, I just would ask you to check that. I don't think you should have any confidence. You're not in any position to try to determine what the will of God for you is in the future when in the present you're outside the will of God. Stop and repent. There is the road of peace and joy and sanctification. That is God's will for you. Here's the last one. Do get married for covenantal love. Now, I don't want you to mistake what I've been saying, that people should get married because they have shame or guilt because you've had sex together and that's what binds you. You know, Apostle Paul does specifically answer this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He does say for... Unmarried people whose sexual, sexual passions are just raging and they're just on fire and just crazy. He does say, hurry up and get married. But please don't take that passage and think, oh, just because I have sexual attractions for this person, I should get married. No, you got to take the whole of the Bible together. And the most important reason why you should marry anyone is for covenantal love. You're ready to promise and commit your love to the other person with everything you got. That's why you should get married. And yes, otherwise, if you love the person, hurry up and get married. Don't let anyone else get in the way. Now, this is why my dear wife and I got married in four months from the first time we met. Now, I wanted to teach, Sonny, you can't just, uh, can't just desire this body. You got you to gotta, you gotta come in and fall in love with my brain and my soul. Marry for covenantal love. I know on this topic, some of you are going to think we talk about it too much. Some of you are going to think we talk about it too little. Some of you in the spectrum, there's way too much guilting and shaming. Others of you are saying, no, I'm all about affirming and indulging. Some of you are everywhere and in between. But I do want you to look at Jesus as we close. Jesus was single. He never got married. He never had sex. And he never had kids. Do you feel sorry for him? 
Jesus never had sex, never got married, never had a house, never had kids. Deep down, do you feel sorry for him? I hope you don't. Because Jesus had infinite pleasure. Because his life was about giving, not getting. Jesus was filled with divine, infinite pleasure. And when you are truly loved, kissed, touched by the one who gave himself at the cross, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood can wipe away any stain, any shame, repeated or not. He justifies you, washes you, sanctifies you, and in the sight of God, you are chaste, spotless, blameless before a holy God. And if and when you get loved like that from Jesus, who stayed single for you, you're not going to have to look for it everywhere else but in him. Oh, G.K. Chesterton once observed, going to see this quote, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. And when you are loved by God in Christ and you are so filled by his spirit, so filled by what he gave, your life will no longer be just about what you get. And you can give, you can give. Believe me, you can give. You can give supernaturally and there'll be infinite pleasures there. And you can give and you can love with all your life without ever having to get married, without ever having to have sex, and without ever having to have kids. Please don't tell me you can't do that. Because Jesus did. My friends, as we come together this morning, Jesus absolutely loves you, his people. And he wants you to find infinite pleasure in doing his will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power and riches of your word. Oh God, and I pray that you would bring cleansing. Cleansing. That cleansing would so reassure and comfort our hearts. And that cleansing would stop us in violating your will. And may your love come flooding down into all of our hearts. For that is what we need the most, O Lord. Would you love us right here, right now? And would you so fill us so that we might become more like you? 